It's only one verse of Scripture initially. Now, we're going to read some other verses, and then I'm going to do a little dialogue with various passages of Scripture here today. But it's in Matthew 24. It's the 34th verse, and it's often the verse of contention in this particular story uh, or this record that is given of Jesus' message on the Mount of Olives that day. It says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. You see that? This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So now, if we'll put the title back up there that I had for just a moment, if we can, on the screen. I say that generation. Jesus said this generation. But what I want you to see is, is that I believe that when we read this text 2,000 years later, this generation was that generation. And it's not necessarily a generation to come. However, we must still be able to look into that historical record and extract truth that affects our generation. Does that make sense? Right? And so we're going to go from... This generation, which is that generation, and we're going to say, God, what are you saying to our generation? That's what I, right? That's what I need today. That's what you need. We need, to, we need to hear what he has to say. So let us pray. Father, I love you, and I'm honored to be in this house. So appreciative of such a wonderful host of people that have come out, Father, to hear me minister the word of God today. And I pray, Lord, that you would prepare their hearts. Let there be a clear both teaching and preaching of the word of God. It's in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen, and you can be seated. Please allow me to dialogue with this passage of Scripture for just a moment of time, put you in its proper context. This is just days before Jesus' betrayal and subsequent uh, crucifixion. This is that final week of his life, his ministry. He's been going in and out of Jerusalem ministering. Sometimes he's in the temple. This particular record is as he was leaving the temple. As he had left the temple, the sermon, almost his final farewell sermon in front of both the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers, and in essence, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of ancient Israel, he had given a stern rebuke. If you were to take the time to read Matthew 23, you'll see that he used strong words, comparing them to a brood of vipers, uh, comparing them to a whited sepulcher. Uh, you know, a tomb, he said, you're, you're beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. He reproved them because he said, you will go all over the world to make one proselyte to Judaism. And when you do, you make him two times more the child of hell than yourself. I mean, he was not trying to get elected pastor of the Jerusalem church. Come on, somebody. It was a strong word. And as he's leaving the temple, the temple This is the temple, the famed temple in Jerusalem, the second temple. The first temple had been built by Solomon and had been destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar because of the apostasy of ancient Israel. Now, we're looking 500 plus years later, a return of Israel from the land of Babylon occurred 70 years after the destruction of the temple, and they began to build a temple But if you've ever read the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, you'll realize that the temple that they built dimmed in comparison to the building that 
that Solomon built because Solomon had all the resources. David had laid up hundreds of millions of dollars in today's currency of gold and wealth to build the temple. But the, the second group, the second temple that is being built, that had been built, was built during impoverished times, coming out of that time of captivity. So it dimmed in comparison. Well, when King Herod became the king of that particular region of Galilee, in order to, to gain some type of allegiance to the Jews, for 46 years he beautified the temple until it was one of the most beautiful structures in all of the known world, in all the known ancient world. And so when the Jews that would make their annual trek or pilgrimage to, the, to, to Jerusalem for their worship at the temple would be in awe at the grandeur of the temple. And, and so even Jesus' own disciples are still, they're caught up in the beauty of that facility. The discourse that's given in Matthew 24 comes as a result of questions that his disciples asked him based upon a statement that he made. And I've ministered that in a little bit greater length last or two weeks ago, but I still want to go back to it for just a moment of time. Jesus, if we go back to the 24th chapter in the first and second and third verses, just for a moment, they may not have all of them up there. I know they got the second and the third verses. It says here, Jesus went out and he departed from the temple and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. Jesus said unto them, see ye not all all these things verily I say unto you there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down now you have to remember that temple had been built hundreds of years earlier but had been beautified just in the last 46 years during the lifetime of King Herod not the King Herod that's in the Gospels that Jesus would stand before as well as Pontius Pilate but his father the first Herod the Great the one that persecuted those that bore male children, the, the women that were killed, you remember, he's the one that had done the work. And so here Jesus is saying, making such a prolific statement, hundreds of thousands of people annually take a pilgrimage to this temple. And it is the heart of worship for the Jewish people. And it is a monumental edifice. It's captured the attention. They've said that there was so much gold in it that, that there was such a glow to it. And not only inside the temple, but also some of the stone was polished so white that from a distance it was just like, a, it was just lit to the, to the natural eye. And so as they're leaving, they point and they look at the beauty of this temple, this monumental you know, edifice that all of Israel comes to worship God at. And Jesus made that, that piercing statement. Not one stone will be left, not overturned. I mean, so that pierces your heart. I made this reference to you on Wednesday night. That would be the equivalent of me when I was in Washington, D.C. three months ago or two months ago, that if I had been standing there with a group of people from our church, if I would have said, in just a few short years, every marble stone that you see will be turned on its side. And then it come into pass. So that was the piercing word that Jesus said. So his disciples then, when they heard that, then when they crossed the valley, it's called the Kidron Valley, went up on the mountain called the Mount of Olives, and they could see the temple from the location of the Mount of Olives. It was, it's easy to see from that particular uh, place. They asked Jesus three questions. They said, tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? 
Now, the point of reference that I am seeking to make here through this teaching is, is that in our in our time and in, in, in the generation in which we live, most what we call prophecy teachers take this passage of Scripture and they apply it to Jesus' return, the second coming of Christ. But the point that I'm arguing is, is I'm arguing and saying that that's not even logical because they didn't even believe that he was going to go. They, did not, they had not even processed that he would be taken from them. So they're asking a different question than what we see often. It says the end of the world. That particular word in the Greek means the age, not the end of the world as you and I think of. When we think of the end of the world, we think of a cataclysmic moment, either the judgment of God that results in the return of Jesus Christ or the judgment day and when God sets up his earthly kingdom on the earth. Right, That's when we think, but they're asking about when will the end of the age be. Here's what I wanted you to see for a moment of time, very briefly. If you, Matthew adds that third question. If you just happen to read this through what it says in Mark and in Luke, your mind doesn't go into our generation. You always kind of confine it to the previous generation. Matter of fact, let me just read real quickly a couple of verses out of Mark's gospel. I think they're going to put them there on the screen and also in Luke. I just want you to understand and look at it from a little different angle here today. Mark chapter 13, verses 2 through 4, same scenario, same thing. And the fourth verse, I'll just skip to the fourth verse. Tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? So their question was in response to the statement that Jesus had made. It was a prophetical declaration, the temple's going to be destroyed. And so Jesus, uh, the, his disciples then said, when's this going to happen? What would you ask? What would you ask? Wouldn't you ask? You'd say, when, when's that going to happen? And what's going to be the sign when that's going to happen? So we'll kind of know. Does that make sense? We'll kind of know when this is going to, you know, because I might be in Jerusalem. I might be here. And if I'm in Jerusalem, I'd like to know, maybe God give me just a little, a little window of warning. Because if I'm there, I'd like, I maybe want to go out the back door to church this time. Right? And so that, that's the logic behind the question. And Luke, I, for the sake of time, you go and read it on your own. But Luke records it exactly the way that Mark does. It's Matthew's reference to the end of the world. But again, you've got to go back to the original language. And you have to separate it from your thought of what the end of the world is and what the end of the age was to that first century Jewish believer. So many supposed prophecy scholars have attempted to bring the events prophesied by Jesus into our generation, and they have done so by connecting it to the rebirth of the state of Israel, to which I'm grateful for and thankful for the rebirth of the state of Israel. But I shared this with you two weeks ago, but they apply the rebirth of the state of Israel to the budding of the fig tree. That was in the context of Matthew 32 through 34. We read the 34th verse, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. But typically, Bible prophecy scholars uh, apply the 32nd verse, when you see the fig tree begin to bud. They want to bring the events of Matthew 24 into our generation. Uh, and, and, and by doing so, they say that when the state of Israel, which lay dormant for 2,000 years, budded again in 1948. That was the beginning of the prophecy clock. I've heard reference to 40 years as a generation or 70 years as a generation. I gave you these numbers two weeks ago. I'll just toss them out at you real quickly because you often hear them. In 1948 plus 40 was 1988. There was huge emphasis in 1987. I was in the Pentecostal movement everywhere you went. There was 
was an anticipation of something potential uh, that could happen. And, and, and again, associated with the return of the Lord or the uh, rapture of the church. Well, if you take 1967, when they recaptured the city of Jerusalem and add 40 years to that, there was great anticipation. They said, well, we missed it. It wasn't 1948. It was 1967 because that's when they took the capital city of Jerusalem from the Arabic nations. And then you add 40 years to that. Well, that came and passed in the year 2007. Now, if you go back to 1948 and you take the reference number of 70, which oftentimes a generation can be ascribed to 70 years, just like the Babylonian captivity was, then that would take us to 2018. So it would still fit in that timetable. And so I'm not saying the Lord's not going to come by 2018. I'm going to tell you when the Lord could come. He can come before I say another statement. He can come at any moment and at any time the Lord can come. And so, still within this context to fulfill that additional or that, 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 that context that they use to uh, try to get a time or a season, 2018 falls into that. If you go back to 1967, add 70 years, that takes you to 2037. So, but my objective is this. My objective is to simply to show you that I believe that the term this generation belonged to that generation. This is just me. You may not feel that way. You and I can argue the theology at a later time. I'm the only one with the microphone in here today. And so this generation, and the reason why that I believe that it applies to this generation and why it moves me more when it's applied to this generation is because I see the significance of Jesus' words and how it affected the men and women of his culture and of his generation, how he loved them enough to warn them. How he loved them enough to weep when he was leaving the city of Jerusalem with the cross laid over his shoulder. And, they were, and the women were mourning behind him. And he said, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. Even though I've just been lacerated at Pilate's whipping post. Even though my flesh hangs off my body. Even though they pierced my head with a crown of thorns. Even though I know they're going to pierce my hands and feet and my side on a cross called Calvary. Even though I know all this is going to happen to me. But don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves. And weep for your children because if they've done this in a green tree, what will they do when God dries up his life out of this temple? So, see, that moves me more than buying the next uh, hot book to try to discover who is the Antichrist. I'm moved by the, the Christ and his warning to the people of Israel. And for the sake of time, I had verses of scriptures that, that I was going to show you, but I'm going to just quickly, well, I'm going to have to read them just real quickly. This generation, one of the ways to discover biblical truth is to go to the Word of God and find a phrase and try to say, how was this used previously? So how was this generation used previously? If you want to know, is this generation that generation or is it our generation? Or is it a generation yet to come? Is it this or that or whichever one it is? Or is it our or is it yet to come? Go back and look at how Jesus used the term this generation. Matthew said in Matthew 11 verse 16, recording from Jesus, recording Jesus' words, Jesus said, whereunto shall I liken this generation? Matthew 12 and 41, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation. Matthew 12 and 42, the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation. Matthew 23 and 36, Jesus said, all these things shall come upon this generation. Mark 8 and 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, why doth this generation seek after a sign? Jesus was frustrated. He said, there shall no sign be given unto this generation except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the belly of the earth. So I'm going to ask you if you're just saying, you know, I, I, you watch some of those uh, shows where they're taking, you know, uh, uh, forensic evidence and you're, they're presenting it to the judges. And, and, and you look at the past way that Jesus used the term this generation, then why would we think that the reference now would leap ahead 2,000 years? And it would not be the consistent way that he used it. He said this in Luke 17, but first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. So what I'm sharing with you is I believe in my heart of hearts that the context of Matthew 24, known as the Olivet Discourse, that's recorded in Mark 13 and Luke 21, belong to that generation. I shared with you that there was an eyewitness account of some of the events they unfolded. I took you through a journey two weeks ago when some of the things that were recorded here in Matthew's gospel that were actually taking place in that first century. Things that were, they were warned, such as false messiahs. Josephus said a false prophet was the occasion of these people's destructions. Wars and rumors of wars. A.D. 30 through A.D. 70 was marked by ongoing battles and wars across the Roman Empire and in the land of Israel. Earthquakes. Josephus records an increasing number of earthquakes and other violent natural upheavals. Famines. The Bible records in Acts a great drought that led to famine, and famine certainly plagued that doomed city of Jerusalem. Martyrdom. All the disciples except for John were martyred for their faith. Did you know martyrdom is still taking place in our generation? People are still suffering for the cause of Christ. We may all arrive at the place that we better not love our lives even unto death. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? And so we see this, the gospel to all the world. All the world, you say, well, Pastor Brown, the all the world has not yet happened. It was all of the Roman Empire. The apostle Paul said in Colossians, you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as it has to all the world. Colossians 1. That first generation were so evangelical that when they were scattered abroad, they went everywhere preaching the word. And so by the time that Jesus, when Jesus gave this prophecy, less than 40 years, all the Roman Empire had heard that there was a man named Jesus that died on a cross called Calvary. But his disciples are telling that there's an additional component to the story. Not only did he die like a lot of people died under the brutal hand of Rome, but this man Jesus got up and laid death in his grave, triumphant over death, hell, and the grave, and he was the promised Messiah. And now he's not reigning on earth, but he's reigning in heaven, and they preach the kingdom of God to all the known world. The abomination of desolation. Many believe that was a Roman insignia, a Roman standard of flag. It was an object of emperor worship. It is reported that it was erected in the temple in Jerusalem and they sacrificed to it from the years of 66 AD before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And the coming of the Son of Man, which is not referencing his return, but rather his coming and judgment on Jerusalem. The application that I'm sharing with you today, and I know you're not shouting me down, but I'm going to preach it anyhow because it's deep in my spirit and I feel like I need to share this. I have a conviction to share this. This application in the first century does not take away our blessed hope, does not take away the promise of his return because we now look through the lens of history. We can see he came once, first advent. He will come back. He will return. Matter of fact, what moves me is in Acts chapter 1 when his disciples were standing on that same Mount of Olives gazing into heaven seeing the clouds close over his glorious body as he ascended into the presence of God. And an angel spoke to this group of men and women and said, Men of Galilee, why stand you here gazing? 
For this same Jesus, as you have seen him go, shall come again. Hallelujah. That's deep in my spirit. So just because I'm making application to what he said in Matthew 24, I'm not saying there's not going to be a say. Yes, he's going to come back. There's going to be a last day. There's going to be a day of judgment because there will come a day in which Jesus Christ will rule both the heavens and the earth. Come on, somebody. As the triumphant King of kings and Lord of lords. And we celebrate him. But you know what we're to do, church family? We're to occupy until he come. We're to do business until he come. The exact fulfillment of this prophecy made by Jesus should cause us to be sober and vigilant even to the events of our generation. The people of Jerusalem failed to remember his words except for the Christians. I told you two weeks ago, they survived. They got out of the city before it was destroyed. But the Jews perished. Let me take you into it a little bit further. It's not exciting, but I'm going to go ahead and share with you. Did you know there were some additional signs that Josephus shared? Signs, weird things. Remember what Jesus said in the passage of Scripture? He said there'll be signs in the heavens and in the earth. There'll be weird things that are going on, the earth convulsing, different things that are taking place. Josephus was that Roman historian who was given uh, uh, the, uh, not the privilege but the responsibility to record Titus taking the city of Jerusalem and also the destruction of the city and the temple. He recorded the events. He wrote it in his memoirs. It was published in a book just five short years later, 75 A.D. And here's what Josephus, he told us that there was a lot of things going on from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. You know what the first thing that did that caused them, that should have caused them to, that? hey, wait a minute. It was the day that Jesus Christ was suspended on the earth. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Remember this? And he pillowed his head on that cross that day, and he gave up the ghost. And when he gave up the ghost, the Bible says that the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. That veil was to be so thick that the writers tell us that it would oftentimes take as many as 300 priests to manipulate that veil. And God, by his invisible hands, just tore it. Earth began to shake. Rocks began to split. The Jews still did not believe. But a Roman centurion on the cross that had just watched, excuse me, on the, on the hill where the cross was planted, a Roman centurion, when the rocks were, cra- were busting open at his feet, his heart was busting open. And he said, surely... Surely this man was the son of God. So the signs around him moved him to believe that this was no ordinary man. For the next 40 years before the temple would be destroyed, God in his mercy sent various signs. Josephus records them. Let me read these to you very quickly. Listen, this is from Josephus' own words. Thus were the miserable people persuaded by these deceivers, and such as bellied God himself. While they did not, Pastor, stay with me, please, please, I want you to hear this. While they did not attend or give credit to the signs that were so evident and did so plainly foretell their future desolation, but like men infatuated without either eyes to see or minds to consider, they did not regard the denunciations that God made to them. In essence, God was gracious to warn them that the city and Judaism itself would be destroyed. And they didn't heed the warning signs. Listen, the reason why I'm preaching about that generation is I do want to have a voice to this generation. That we've got to be aware of what's going on around us. And not, be, not, not fail to recognize that we're living in turbulent times. 
Something may be at work that's bigger than anything you've ever thought of in the past. Here's some of the events that took place. Did you know a star and a comet? There was a star that resembled a sword that stood over the city and a comet, and it continued for an entire year. For an entire year. There was light around the altar. Listen to this. Before the Jews' rebellion and before those commotions which preceded the war, when the people were coming great crowds to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, on the eighth day of the month, at the ninth hour of the night, a light shone round about the altar in the holy house, that it appeared to be a bright daytime. It lasted for half an hour, and the light seemed to be a good sign to the unskillful, but it was so interpreted by the sacred scribes as to portend those events that followed immediately upon it. So a light shone like the noonday sun even at night around the altar. Uh, Josephus tells us at the very same festival, they were bringing a heifer to sacrifice it. And as she was being led by the high priest, she brought forth a lamb in the midst of the temple. The eastern gate, the eastern gate, which it would take many, many men to open it, opened on itself and could not be moved for a period of time. There was a, this, listen to this, there was, there was a miraculous uh, sign of, of chariots in the air. Listen to what Josephus said. Besides this, a few days after the feast, on the 1 and 20th day of the month, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon occurred. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those that saw it. He said, this is so unbelievable, you would think it a fable if I didn't know the people that saw it. He said, and then the events that followed it were so considerable a nature as to deserve such signal. For before the sun setting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their army were seen running about the clouds and the surrounding cities, visible to the men and the women living in Jerusalem. At the feast called Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as their custom was to perform their sacred menstruations, they said that in the first place they felt a quaking, they heard a great noise, and after they heard the sound of a great multitude saying, let us remove hence, as if God in his glory said, it's now time to depart from this holy place. Are y'all with me today? So let me go a little bit further, and then I'm going to take it and make it as personal as I can for us here today. One other is, is, is there was a man by the name of Jesus himself. He was the son of Ananias. He was a, a, a married man. But in 66 A.D., he began, or excuse me, 60, 60, uh, 63 A.D., he began to prophesy. Here's what his voice was. A voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds, a voice against Jerusalem, a voice against the holy house, a voice against the bridegrooms, a voice against the whole night. His cry was so great. Day and night, he would never lose his voice, but he would walk through the streets of Jerusalem. They would take him and beat him. He would cry, woe unto Jerusalem. Some people would feed him. He would, recry, he would reply, a voice of woe unto Jerusalem. Finally, they stood him up on the wall, and the Romans launched one of those flames missiles those stones that they had soaked in oil and lit with fire and they shot it towards the city and the people had put him up on a wall and he was hit and he died and his last words were woe to the city for seven years he walked through the city speaking against it God was gracious to give signs God was warning the people Listen to this, a black stone, according to the Talmud, the writings of ancient Israel. Each year, the Jewish high priest would perform a ceremony. Part of it involved a prediction about the coming year. The priest would reach his hand into a bag and he would pull out two small stones. 
a black one or a white one. He couldn't feel which one was which. He reached in and withdrew one, excuse me. If it was white, the coming year would be good. If it was black, it was a bad omen about the coming year. The, the, the Talmud records that for the 40 years prior to this, Jesus' death on the cross, then there was mixed, you know, there would come up a white one occasionally and there would come up a black one. It was kind of random. But after Jesus died on the cross, that the priest, when he put his hand in the bag, for the next 40 years without exception, he drew out the black stone. The chances of that happening, the chances of that happening are one in a trillion. But God was speaking to the people through even odd signs. And lastly, of all the signs, a red ribbon was tied in the horns of the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. When the goat was led out before the people, if God accepted the sacrifice, the ribbon would miraculously turn white as a reminder of the promise. Though your sins be as scarlet, they are white like snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. But it is interesting that for the 40 years between the sacrifice of Jesus and the destruction of the temple, the scarlet ribbon never turned white again. Because the blood of bulls and the blood of goats and the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer could not take away sin. And the Jewish people had grown so hardened in their heart that they were still looking to earthly means to obtain an eternal redemption. But God had sent his son to give us precious blood, blood that could do what the blood of all the goats and all the bullocks and all the scapegoat and all the ashes of the heifer could not do. And that way it was that it could take away sin, put it away, and bring us into true fellowship with God. And so God was given all these signs to say, you're looking for a redeemer, a redeemer has already come. He stood in your midst and you did not know him. And you hung him. That's why it was, it was Peter's message on the, in Acts chapter 3. He looked to the Jews and he said, you by your own wicked hands, you have betrayed him and you have killed him. But God has raised him from the dead and caused him to be Lord of all. That was the message of the other apostles. And so church family, and just for, I'm going to have to shift and transition. I intended to read to you in great detail some of Josephus' record of the destruction of the temple. But if you on your own, and for the sake of time, I'll not do so. And that's very difficult for me because I really wanted to do this today. It's very sombering. It's humbling. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go beyond that. It's heart-wrenching because mothers sodden their own children during the days of the famine. They fought, they slaughtered each other. Excuse me, Jews slaughtered each other when they became locked inside the city. The famine was so great, there was no food. Blood flowed out of the city like the Bible says it would to the, to the, to the belly of the horses or to the bridle of the horse's mouth. It was atrocious. 1,100,000 1, Jews perished in the city until almost all of the known Jewish populace perished, fulfilling exactly the words of Jesus. I know it's not exciting for us to look back at history, but you've got to look back. Or if you don't look back occasionally, you'll be caught unawares in your generation. And so I'm going to go past all of that for the sake of time today. I believe, you read it, you and I, you can call me and come in my office. We'll have a great di discussion. I'm probably not going to convince you. And you, or I can just tell you, you're not going to convince me. I believe this generation was that generation. 
And Jesus' words were fulfilled to the T. And Jesus' words to our generation will be fulfilled to the T. That's where I'm moved. You know what moves me when I read this? I, I, want to, I don't want to be a part of the people who don't look around them and say, man, something is not the same. Things are changing. Let me tell you, things have changed in the United States called America. Come on, somebody. And, and, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to just, I'm going to cut all the way past six pages of notes. And I'll somebody say, shut up, I am going to see you. Thank God. <laughs> I know you are. I know you are. I know, I know. You remember how Jesus said he knew their thoughts. That's what the Bible says. He knew their thoughts. I know your thoughts. But I want to encourage you. Please, please let me do this. Please. I want to encourage you. Go back and read. Read, read, read Josephus' record. He was an eyewitness account. And see if it doesn't break your heart. Jeremiah wept over the destruction of the first city or the first temple, remember? He's called the weeping prophet. There's a book entitled The Lamentations of Jeremiah. He wept at the destruction of the people of God. Josephus is akin to that. And he weeps over such uh, a suffering that the, the people of God suffered because that they had rejected Jesus. So here I am. So let me say this, while direct applications cannot or should not, in my opinion, be made, comparisons and spiritual principles always should be applied. Let me give you an example. Dr. Brassfield took a passage out of Matthew 24, where Jesus said, this gospel shall be preached to all the world, and then the end shall come. He wasn't trying to make it a direct application in our time, but he extracted the principle from it, that in the midst of uncertain times, how many know the gospel must be preached? Are y'all with me out there? In the midst of crazy, confusing times, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the good news of the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, no matter what's going on around us, our responsibility is to show forth the love of God through Christ Jesus, right? And so that is why I, that's the way I believe that we have to learn from those passages of Scripture. I believe in our generation there are warning signs and foreboding events that you and I better look up. We better take notice of. We better say, you know what? What is going on around us? And I'm going to just toss this out at you here to conclude the sermon. And in doing so, I've omitted perhaps the weightier matter of the message. And that is the actual record of Josephus, uh, you know, viewing the destruction of the city. But in my opinion, this is all it is. You don't have to, this is just between me and God. And I'm just sharing it with you. You'll just have to process it on your own. But I believe there's some warning signs in our generation that we have to be aware of, of things that could lead to catastrophic cataclysmic events could lead to cataclysmic events in the nation that we call America. Number one is cultural change. I've shared with you before, and I'll say it again, the American culture is consistently moving farther away from its Judeo-Christian heritage. You're aware of this as well, and everybody said amen. The reality is this, we will soon be living in, if not already, a pagan society. A pagan society, a disdain for biblical principles and grotesque lust of the flesh and mind. The vice president of the United States went through a process to get some type of ecclesiastical or some type of state ordination so that he could perform a same-sex wedding ceremony just in the last few weeks. So weird things, in my opinion, that's, a, that's an odd thing. That's something that ought not be happening, but it is happening. 
And it's causing me to say, man, what's going on around us? Did you know we think oftentimes you hear in the political debates about the building of a wall and whether we should build a wall. And I hear people all the time and say, you know what? Drugs are just flooding over the border coming into our country. Let me just stay here today. Let me just make a statement. You know what would stop the very last shipment of drugs into the United States from either the border down south or even the northern border or even coming in through the coast on the east or the west? is if there was no demand. Without a demand, there would be no manufacturing and no production and no... If we as Americans would just say, we're killing ourselves, putting chemicals in our body that's destroying us and our families. But the the satanic spirit has a... Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Has a stronghold on the minds of men and women. And we're injecting in our bodies things that we know is killing us. And we are at an epidemic... It's at an epidemic, and you can't hide from it any longer. You can't say, well, it's only in the big city. No, it's across the street, Searcy Street, 11th Street. Go up any street from this church right now. You, as far as you could throw a stone, you could hit a house where somebody's injecting themselves with crystal meth. We've got to be aware because when you do things like that, when you sow to the flesh, I read in the Bible, you're going to read, you're going to read. So Americans lust for pornography. Pastor, you're preaching. I'm just preaching the truth. Sexual depravity, entertainment is going to lead to a very bitter harvest. Number two, this needs to be a sign to us as a church family. Apathy, complacency, and lack of conviction in the church. Let me go a little bit further. You know, I'm just going to preach it anyhow. Even if everybody leaves, I have a responsibility from heaven to preach what I know God's laid on my heart. Did you know one thing? It's, it's one thing to be living in a pagan society. It's another to be part of an apathetic church. The lack of conviction in the church is very disturbing. What I mean by the lack of conviction, I'm talking about when, as I've told you more than one occasion, when men and women that know better and still do it and still just keep going down that path, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, and the way thereof leads to destruction. We've got men and women that are in in our midst that we know and love who attend worship services faithfully while they live together or are sexually active or consistent social drinkers or moderate drug users. On and on and on. And you say, Pastor, well, they're caught in a vice. I understand. But they won't ever come out of that vice if there's no conviction. Conviction's the power of the Holy Spirit that grips our heart. And conviction has said, you know what, God, you created me for more than this. You called me out of sin, not to revel in sin. And, to, and so as a church family, you know what, they're here all the time, the condemnation of the, of the Republican Party towards President Obama because he won't call it what it really is. It is Islamic extremism. I'll get to it in a moment time. And, and, we're, and most on the, on the right are saying he ought to at least call it what it is. That's right. I agree wholeheartedly. But we in the church need to call it what it is too. We in the church need to say, you know what, this is sin. You need to deal with these things. And, and we gotta, we gotta, there's so much in, going on in the church and there's no conviction. I ask you this question. When are we going to judge ourselves so that we will not be judged? When are we going to come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing? 
When is holiness going to return to the church? When is it going to arrive at the place where we say, you know what, I'm going to talk different, act different. I'm not going to put these things in my body that I used to. I'm not going where I used to because he called me out. I hear all the time, Pastor, oh, it's about the love of God. It's about how he loved us. I know when you're an immature believer, it's all about that he loved us. When is the transition point going to be made in your life where you say, God, it's not that he loved me, but now, God, I love you, and I'm changing my love because I, I know what you've done for me on the cross. And I understand both that it's you've loved me, but now that I love you, you love me enough to come to me to save me and redeem me. And now, God, let me live my life for your glory. And so, church family in the apathetical church, we just say, just come to Jesus. Come to Jesus is good, but be changed by Jesus. When are we are going to consider the words of Jesus? Are we becoming the people? that draw near to God with their mouth and honor the Lord with our lips, but our heart is far from him. Is that happening right in front of our eyes while we crowd into large contemporary churches to sing all kinds of worship music? And yet at the same time, we go right back out to a pathetical life filled with sin. I know this, sin shall not have dominion over me. Sin shall not have dominion over me. He came to set me free. He that the Son is set free is free indeed. I believe that I can overcome sin because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. He sent his spirit into my heart crying, Abba, Father. And now addictions and habits and I used to curse and I used to say these things and I used to lust and I used to watch pornography and I used to drink and I used to be bound by that crystal myth. But now that the power of the Holy Spirit abides on the inside of me, then I can overcome come as he overcame i live my life to the glory of god i want to walk before him and be ye holy i want to come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not when's that going to come back to the church when's the contemporary church going to preach about holiness again when are we going to say it does matter how we live what we look like what our clothing like it does matter it does matter. I know we've gone too far with it. And at one time we swung the pendulum to the other side. But you know, there still comes a matter when we need convictions and moralities and modesty. Where is it in the church? It's because there's no conviction. It's a everything exists, goes because we're, this is our mindset. I'm just loved by God. Yes, I know you're loved by God. But do you love God? That's the question I'm asking you. Do you love God? Number three, there's only four and I'll leave you alone. Please don't let this stop you from coming back for watermelon tonight. <laughs> you better get ready. Number three, the effects of liberalism will be of dire consequences on the United States of America. Liberalism's influence in our public school system, its propagation by Hollywood elites, and its stranglehold on the Democratic Party will continue to fuel the flame of abortion on demand. I'm preaching whether y'all shouting or not. God, it's just me alone up here. I'm like, I'm like Elijah. Lord, it's just me left up here, God. Surely there's some among us who haven't bowed down to Baal. Open pagan sexuality and homosexuality. It will continue to fuel racial divide and tension. 
Fatherless homes will continue amongst the poor because when you get paid to have babies out of marriage, most are going to continue to do so. I know you don't like hearing it, but I'm telling the truth anyhow. A misgu- Did you know at the turn of the century in the African-American community, I don't like to even use that word, those words, but I'll do it just for your understanding. At the turn of the century and from the 1900s, 4% of children were born out of wedlock, but liberalism came along and said we need to pay the poor to have babies. And now 75% of every child born to a black man or black woman is born out of the covenant of marriage and then we wonder why crime is so heavy in our streets because these children are raised without daddies that's what's going on I know you don't like hearing that but I came to preach and tell you the truth anyhow I want you to know that we have a misguided belief that government is the solution to everyone's problems and that gun control will stop the violence on our streets Listen, when people want to kill, they'll find a stick, they'll find a knife, they'll get a rented vehicle, they'll drive through masses of people, they'll get an airplane. When they want, when, when hatred and murder's in their heart, the you know, gun control's not going to stop it. And it's idiotic to even think so. I believe liberalism is a satanic stronghold that can even be lodged in the mind of God's people. I once lightly condemned it, but no more. I believe it's a demonic spell that needs to be broken in the name of Jesus. That's the way I feel in my heart. I know, I know that President Obama is not going to get this sermon. I know he's not. Nobody's going to say, Pastor, or brother, or, or, or President Obama, I want you to hear this message. This brother here is better than Jeremiah Wright, your former pastor. I know he's not going to get it, but let me just say this. I've said it before. Climate change is not the number one problem facing America today. Climate change is not. You know what? Sometimes when the climate changes, it's good because you get rain in August. <laughs> Hallelujah. But I'll just save that for another day. Lastly today, number four. I did run in here today, just not as much as that brother the other night. Number four and lastly, and you better hear this preacher today. This is not playing around. It's not pre- the rise of Islamic extremism and influence has come from, you say it's come from nowhere. No, it's been there all along. It's been there all along, but it's been obscured to the eyes of the Western world. And suddenly it's here. Let me say this. Islam has never been a peaceful religion. It has never been. It was birthed in blood, and it continues to fan the flame of conflict around the world. Did you know that 90% of all militant conflict that's happening right now somewhere in the world is a result of Islamic jihad? 90%. Even apart from jihad, Islam is distorted and it's perverted. It allows the abuse of women and of children. While it claims to denounce idolatry, it is in of itself idolatry and it is filled with idolatrous practices. Allah is not Yahweh, Jehovah. It's not. Go back and look at the history of it. I'm not, I can't tell you. I can't take you into the, I'll tell you who Allah was. Allah was Baal. Go back and trace the history. Allah was the same Baal that Elijah condemned the Israelites for worshiping and sacrificing to. He masked himself. He reemerged. But it's that same spirit in the earth today. While we must continue to support missions work among, amongst the Muslims, the beginnings of a great holocaust are in the works. I know that's not exciting preaching, but the jihadists of our generation believe that they are fulfilling ancient Islamic prophecies and they are participating in a great conflict that will result in some type of Islamic Messiah. My challenge to you is this. You need to educate yourself. 
Pastor, you're just feeding the flame of Islamophobia. No, I'm telling you, you better heed the signs that are going on around you. You better heed the signs. And I've said this before, and I want to say it one more time, and I'm about to close today. I have to get this out of my heart. I have to, church family. I can't just come in here and, and just pat everybody on the back and tell everybody, you know, it's just kumbaya, and we're just going to have just a little party at church until Jesus comes back and rescues us here. God loves the American Christian more than he loves the Christians around the world. They're being persecuted for their faith, and he's going to protect you. No, I can't tell you that. I can tell you that perilous times could be in your future. That dangerous times could be in our futures. And we got to, we got to be vigilant. we got to be vigilant and sober and be wise. And we still be harmless as doves, but we're wise as serpents. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying today? I'm just trying to tell you the truth about these things. And, and I want you to think about them and pray about them. I've told you before, somebody's right. Rush Limbaugh claims that he's right. I'm telling you, somebody's right. And you got to ask yourself, what? I would hate to err on this side and be wrong. I've said this before about the Islamic extremists. And when you think of the religion, you say, well, there's only 4% or so that are, are violent. Well, of, a, uh, of those numbers, there's over 1 billion Muslims. And so with that, that means 40 million. 40 million people could potentially be violent. But here's the thing that even beyond that, that has to be our concern. As I've said this before, they don't fish from amongst other religions to pull them into Islamic extremism. All they have to do is fish in the fishbowl called Islam, where there's over one billion people that if they can just fuel extremism within them, then they snap and they're taking a truck and they're driving down the streets of a calm city in France, running over, are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Slaughtering people. Armed conflict it's not only in the streets and the deserts of the Middle East. It's in the streets and cities of Europe. And now, it's in the streets and the cities of the United States. And we can't sit around here and act like that God does not need the church to be vigilant during this time period. I'm going to ask you to stand up. No music, no nothing today. I know it's not exciting. I know you said, man, Pastor, you followed up Brother Floyd, and he was preaching like a wild man. Everybody was happy. I'm sorry. Everything is not happy. I'm just being honest with you. Jesus sat down on the Mount of Olives, and he told the people of his generation, he said, in 40 years, everything's going to change. If we don't see a revival in America in 40 years, everything's going to be changed. There will no longer be a Christian heritage. There will no longer be a value to the Word of God that we have had historically. So, church family, we need to pray. We have to educate ourselves. We have to be aware. I told you two weeks ago, and I'll tell you today, it was an odd thing that took place when the Roman emperor, not the emperor, but the Roman general that captured the city of Jerusalem. He captured the city, and he penetrated the city. This was before the famine, before all that, before the three and a half years, 42 months of captivity. He did a weird thing. He went in, and he erected a, a flag, some believe it to be in the temple, some sacrifice to it potentially, fulfilling the desolation of abomination spoken of by the prophet Daniel that Jesus had warned him about. Excuse me. And then for three days, he backed away. No known reason, nothing. He just backed away. During that time, the Christians remembered what Jesus said. And they flew. Remember what Jesus said? He said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, stand in the holy place if you're on the housetop, don't go get your bag, right? You got you to grab your family and go. If you're in the field and you see that happen, you got to get out of there right now. 
Josephus records that all the Christians that had been dwelling in Jerusalem survived because they escaped the city during that little window of time that God gave them. But the others perished because they didn't heed the signs. I can't give you a game plan. I'm not here to cast a game. I'm just telling you, be sober. Don't be lulled to sleep. Don't let political leaders dissuade you about what is... Listen, political needs to be second to biblical. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? So you know what you believe. Get this word inside.